BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. This call is being recorded. To accept the call, press 3. John Gate. If I found a body in your trunk, do I assume that you kidnapped him, tortured him, raped him, and threw him in the trunk? Welcome to Killer's Vault. I'm Elizabeth Rome. Join Eric Roberts and me as we take you inside the brutal minds of the most prolific serial killers the world has ever known. Through never-before-seen or heard letters and phone calls between Rob Webb and Richie and Barbara Dickstein, these personal accounts of murder and mayhem will be unleashed for the first time as we open the Killer's Vault. Gerard Schaefer, Part 2. The students and the teachers at St. Thomas Aquinas High School gave Gerard Schaefer a wide berth in the classroom and on the school campus. Classmates referred to him as a bit of an oddball, or that kid that was just a little off. Schaefer had always felt like an outsider, unable to fit in with kids his own age. It wasn't because Schaefer couldn't fit in, he just didn't want to. From as far back as he could remember, Schaefer felt smarter and more superior than kids his own age. Besides, he had nothing in common with those, as he liked to call them, little rednecks. They wanted to go swimming in pools. He wanted to swim naked in the swamps and lakes behind his house. They wanted to play ball. He wanted to shoot birds, rabbits, and snakes so that he could dissect them later. In high school, Schaefer had grown indifferent to the pejoratives he knew some of the other kids in his grade said about him. In fact, Schaefer leaped into the brilliant lone wolf character he perceived himself to be. Schaefer knew he was intellectually miles beyond his teachers, let alone his fellow drone-like classmates. In the middle of a theology lesson, Schaefer raised his hand. When he was called on, he stood up, and in a loud, almost accusatory voice, he began challenging the Catholic religion. At first, the bewildered teacher didn't know what to make of Schaefer's sudden outburst, and when he tried to calm him down, Schaefer became enraged, almost screaming in defiance. His hands gesticulated wildly as he stabbed pointed fingers in the air and stamped his feet while trying to further his point, which no one could quite decipher until his final statement, which chilled them all to the bone. Schaefer then slowly scanned the faces in the classroom terrified students and an equally terrified and perplexed teacher. That is when Schaefer equated the Virgin Mary, Christ's mother, to a whore, a filthy, lying whore. He doubled down on the blasphemy, 
by explaining the impossibility of immaculate conception and that Mary simply used the miracle as a way to hide her adulterous relationships from her cuckold husband, Joseph. After this outbreak, or break from reality, the students and some of the teachers became very cautious of Gerard John Schaefer. When Schaefer's mother was called into school and was told of her son's outburst, she fell apart in tears. It was apparent that she had lost not only contact with her eldest son, but she had lost whatever control she once had over him. For reasons unknown, Schaefer got a pass for his deviant outburst and he was allowed to finish out his high school years at St. Thomas. Had anyone been looking, the slow ascension of Gerard Schaefer's psychotic pathology, how it formed and then metastasized, had been encompassed and encapsulated in that one horrifying mental break that Schaefer disguised as a debate. Here are a few letters written to Richard Dickstein giving elaborate detail into his obsession with children. Richard, you asked to see some gross scenes. Here is one that shows where I'm cutting the head off a nine-year-old girl. The pic is not so good because it was taken at night. The face is extremely distorted because the girl was hanged on a rope designed for an adult woman. It was too thick for a young girl and she just slowly strangled and rubbed the skin raw on her neck so she was bloodied too. I do have more scenes where the sadistic elements are evident such as a death room at the New York farm. You can see a blood spattered hooker kneeling on a blood excrement stained mattress where she's about to get her last fuck before being strangled. She has a look of pure terror on her face. The gas chamber is not real complex. I just put a girl in the car, tie her, secure the seatbelt, run a hose to the exhaust. I use the gas method on kids mostly. I'd hang the welfare mama, <laughs> then gas the kids. I got a pick of a freshly gassed girl about age six. If you want to see it, let me know. Schaefer preferred being alone as opposed to the alternative which was perhaps a wide array of friends and companions. He had always regarded childhood friendships as over-manufactured relationships that had been born out of organized sports and school clubs. He believed those friendships existed solely for the benefit of the parents. It was a way for the adults to keep tabs on their little drones, but more important, a way for all the mommy and the daddy drones to approve of the families of those kids his family. To Schaefer, friendship meant scrutiny, and scrutiny meant rejection. He didn't want any part of it because there was an awful lot to scrutinize in his life, such as his drunken, arrogant father and his ugly, combustible nature, and his disgusting slut mother, who had freely taken the seed of a dog which had then metastasized into a rotting husk of pain and anger. Him. Crushing depression, desperation, the nothingness of the past and the future, those are the feelings that were born out of Schaefer's parents' rejection of him as a child. It was that rejection that cut Schaefer the deepest, and it would forever trigger his dark, demented savagery. When his father wasn't home or away on business trips, which Schaefer knew was code for 
gone for a while with another girlfriend, his mother was angry, depressed, and quite often drunk. The house would remain a pigsty. There was no set time for lunch or dinner. And at times, she was violent to him and his siblings. When his father was home, they would continuously argue and fight over his previous business trips, as well as his next business trip. Many of those arguments were epic and violent. Nothing had changed since he was a boy except his parents' ever-growing resentment and hatred towards one another. Schaefer had always been proud, and as he got older, his pride had only propagated. When teachers or the school nurse would question him about the odd bruising found on his body, Schaefer was quick to dispel any notions that he came from a troubled and abusive home. He learned to lie at a very young age, and as time went on, he became a master at telling lies, as well as becoming a master of manipulation. Schaefer knew that he was eventually going to have to assimilate into social settings, especially if he's going to continue evolving in the dark arts. So, the very last thing he wanted was more people gossiping about how dysfunctional Schaefer's family really was. He needed to learn what other people did in real life, but also how they were able to maintain what appeared to be loving and caring relationships. This was Schaefer's next iteration, his next big challenge, fitting in in order to hide in plain sight. Schaefer was 15 years old when he instinctively knew the time had come for him to appear as though he had a girlfriend. He had known Cindy Lockhart for two years, and regardless of the debate that had almost gotten him thrown out of school, Schaefer knew that some of the older classmates were attracted to him. He could just feel it. Like Cindy Lockhart, who was a year older. He would catch her staring at him during Sunday Mass, or on the bus going to or coming from school. Schaefer believed that many of the other girls were watching him as well. And why wouldn't they? He was taller than most of the other kids in his grade. In fact, he was as tall as most of the seniors. He had a great body and shit. He was also incredibly handsome. So how couldn't they be fantasizing about him? They were only human after all. Schaefer was attracted to Cindy. He knew this because his first instinct wasn't to rip her uterus out and then namely rape and sodomize her corpse, which is what he felt like doing with ever-increasing urges to most girls in his school. Cindy seemed different. She was aloof to all of the bullshit pomp and rah-rah-rah team spirit. Nauseating. No, Cindy was more mature, not caught up in all the little look at me, look at me, please look at me games. Cindy was also smarter than most. He'd seen her many academic ribbons in the school display case, which is where he first noticed her. The display case had been a prime location for Schaefer to stalk his intended victims without anyone noticing him. He'd hide inside the janitor's closet, which had the perfect vantage point. He'd crack the door just enough to watch the afternoon show. Hiding behind the broom handles and mops, he recorded everything he saw. Everything that was wrong in the world pranced and posed around that fucking display case. After Ivy League schools, where they would fucking suck their professors for perfect grades, then meet the perfect jock, buy the perfect house, have their perfect little clones, and it all begins right here. 
So many whores wearing their tight little cheerleader outfits, parading and displaying for all those meathead jocks. Oops, look where we are, guys. Right in front of the display case with all those trophies. How fucking adorable. How much of a trophy will you be when I slice off your face? They were all on his list. What slutty outfit they wore that day, who they were dating, and who they were fucking on the side. Schaefer had copious notes, and one day Schaefer was going to get every last one of them. Dr. Catherine Ramsland is a world-renowned expert on serial killers, a professor of forensic psychology and criminal justice. She has five graduate degrees, three of which are forensic psychology, clinical psychology, and criminal justice. She's the author of How to Catch a Killer, Confession of a Serial Killer, and 66 other books, in addition to hundreds of articles and short stories. Schaefer was brutal mentally and physically torturing his victims and showed no remorse for any of his murders. He claimed to have killed 140, although he was only charged with two murders. Whether or not this is true, how could someone so evil exist? I do think his environment had a deep impact on his sense of self, such that he never accepted who he was as a man, and it was made worse by all the inadequacies Throughout his life, he failed at everything. He wanted to be a priest. He wanted to be a teacher. He wanted to be a cop. He failed at his marriage. He failed at everything. And so, in a sense, he fulfilled exactly what his father thought of him. He was never going to be worthwhile. And he blamed others for that. So the kind of anger we see here is typically either suicidal or homicidal. Somebody's going to pay for the way he feels. Cindy wasn't a cock tease like the rest of them. She was pure, like an expectant virgin, waiting for him and only him to usher her out of the inert Catholic innocence her parents and that fucking school had made her a slave to. Schaefer was going to introduce her to his eclectic world of bondage, pain, and ecstasy. Though his father attempted feebly at best to hide his wandering eye and his overall creepiness from the family, whenever Cindy was at the house, the cuckold old prick just couldn't help himself. Though his father's sexual fixation with Cindy repulsed Schaefer, it also gave him a great amount of pleasure because he had something that his father wanted but could never have. So he began toying with him leaving little traps to see how far his creepiness would take him. They had begun by kissing. When the relationship turned sexual, Schaefer sheepishly asked her if she had ever been with anyone before. She was a virgin. This was an incredible boost to his ego, thinking that he was the first to deflower this virtuous Catholic girl. He'd been spying on his sister and his parents for years, the same way his father was about to spy on him and Cindy. When he was younger, Schaefer had devised a way to see into his parents' and his sister's bedroom windows, even though the curtains appeared to be closed. Standing on a chair, he would carefully separate only the tops of the curtains, 
pulling them open just enough to be able to see into the room. He would then smooth out the bottom panels of the curtains so they would appear to be closed, which is exactly what he had done to the curtains in his room so that his father would have the same bird's eye view. Once inside the dark recesses of the treehouse, the only thing that Daddy, Mr. Wonderful, had to do was look down and into the opening of the curtains. And with the pair of binoculars Schaefer would leave for him, he was going to see everything up close and personal. Schaefer told Cindy they were going night swimming, and he knew exactly what she'd be wearing. A pair of flip-flops, a button-down shirt opened up to her navel, and the bright red bikini she always wore to tease Schaefer before having sex. Cindy went along with most of the scenarios and role plays Schaefer created as a preamble to sex, but when he insisted that she remain totally bound and gagged during rape role play, that is where she drew the line. Schaefer somehow got Cindy to compromise. She would allow everything except restraints on her legs, and he could no longer use the hunting knife to tear off her clothing when he pretended to rape her. Schaefer enjoyed having sex with Cindy while learning about male and female contact, which was his original objective. So he was surprised when he developed strong feelings for her. She accepted him for who he was, or at least the person he was pretending to be. He believed she would never reject him the way his family had. And because of that acceptance, he could see a long-term relationship blossoming with her. He wondered if she would be the one who could stop him from seeking vengeance on all the whores in the world. What Schaefer didn't know was, Cindy was beginning to think there might be something a little more than off with him. The sex was getting rougher and more elaborate, which didn't bother her as much as the things he was saying bothered her. It was his increasing hatred and intensity that he showed when he ranted about wanting to rid the world of whores and sluts and how easy it would be to get rid of them by simply dumping their decapitated bodies into the Everglades. Gator bait, he called them. The fact that he had put so much thought into the disposal of women scared her. Schaefer met Cindy at the front door, grabbing her by the hand and walking her slowly past his creepy father. As he dragged Cindy to the back of the house, he noticed his father swing his feet off the couch and lean over to get that one last look at her ass and legs. It was on! Schaefer had everything prepared. The gag ball, the bindings, the blindfold, the rope he fashioned into a noose, and the cat of nine tail he made out of an old leather belt all tucked away within hand's reach. He placed the elastic gag ball in her mouth, cinching it tight. He then placed his knees on her back and tied the rope around her wrists. He pulled out a length of rope, tying her wrists and ankles together. She was hog-tied, ready to be placed on a spit. Schaefer saw her tears welling into big pools, sliding down her cheeks, but he was too far gone to stop. Plus, Daddy was watching. Have to give him a good show. He removed his clothing, revealing his erection, and then he turned to face the window. As he looked directly into the large gap in the curtains, he produced an eerie smile. 
and a large hunting knife. He carefully slid the fat blade between the elastic fabric of her bathing suit. Cindy was terrified, crying and gasping for air. How easily he could open her up, but she wasn't the one. He flipped her over, reaching underneath the bed, he pulled out the whip. Her eyes opened wide when he waved it defiantly in her face, her horrified screams muffled by the gag ball. He began whipping her back and buttocks hard enough to raise her skin without tearing it open, which is what he really wanted to do. Another time, perhaps. He blindfolded her, and then he looped the noose around her neck. As he cinched it tight, her body instinctively drew back, which is when he rammed himself inside of her. While he simulated her rape, he used the rope to control her movements. If she fought back, he pulled the noose tight, cutting off her air supply. Only when she stopped resisting did he release the rope. This went on for a long while, until she collapsed on the bed in a lifeless heap. Schaefer panicked, quickly removing the gag ball and the restraint. She was blue. He began blowing big breaths of air into her mouth. He listened for breathing. Nothing. He began compressing her chest ten times and then three more bursts of air. He continued doing this until she coughed and he finally seizing in as much air as she could. Schaefer stood and backed away as her color returned. His eyes closed as a wave of euphoria washed over him. The incredible elation he felt wasn't because he had saved his girlfriend's life. That jubilation resulted out of a new and wonderful knowledge. He could strangle a woman to death and then revive her. Strangle her again, then revive her. Strangle, revive, repeat, prolonged torture. Once again, Schaefer felt the ugly sting of rejection. Cindy hadn't returned his calls, nor did he see her at school. She had disappeared. He was dismissed, made to feel less than worthless by the one person left in his life he could trust. The crushing betrayal was far more debilitating for Schaefer than the day he learned he was his mother's bastard son. Rejection had become the sum total of his life. This was the turning point in Gerard Schaefer's life. His psychoses, his perceptions, his thoughts and emotions had become so impaired by this last rejection that he had completely lost contact with reality. Listen as Gerard details a similar escapade written to Richard Dickstein. Richard, this is Missy Miller, a former dancer at the Jungle Club in Miami. I hanged her at the Oakland Park Warehouse in June 1968. I sent this photo to illustrate the manner in which the tongue is caused to protrude from the female's mouth. When the trapdoor opens and the woman is suspended, the pressure on the throat causes the tongue to come slithering out, bringing with it slobber and drool. <laughs> as you see here, the tongue is fully extended, as it should be when a woman is hanged using the snot setting. This photo was taken 30 to 45 minutes after the hanging. The tongue is stiffening and the mucus at the center is drying. The tongue is 
the center of interest in this picture. Missy Ann is laying on her shoulders because she is hanged up by her ankles for the purpose of cleansing her buttocks and legs. The last picture I sent showed a Latin prostitute who had been hanged with a knot in front, so her neck was snapped by jerking up the point of her chin. It was a quick kill and reasonably clean. By contrast, when the noose is set at the base of the skull, the lady lives on the rope for about 15 minutes and does a lively rope dance. There was always a problem with pee because usually the hooker had been drinking and the run up from Miami took about two hours. So she naturally had a full bladder by the time we got to the warehouse. My habit was hanging them quickly. So when I pulled the lever and the trap door opened, the ladies always wet themselves and their clothing thoroughly. There was usually <laughs> a considerable puddle under the lady. <laughs> Gerard Schaefer took his time writing and defining his murderous manifesto. He wrote in-depth scenarios of the murders and how he would commit them. He drew detailed sketches of the women he envisioned torturing and killing. He wrote step-by-step -step instructions of the abduction, how he would travel to his kill spot, what he would need to prepare his victim for torture and murder, and the delicious methods he would use to debase and humiliate his victims before they were slaughtered like helpless lambs. The following is just one of these entries. The victim could be any one of the many women who flocked to Miami or Fort Lauderdale during the winter months. Even two victims would not be too difficult to dispose of since women are less wary when traveling in pairs. In any case, it may be more preferable to find and gag the victims before transporting to the place of execution. But then again, depending on what torture I plan for, other items may be useful. In this journal entry, Schaefer gives graphic details about what happens to one of his victims after a hanging. The shitting was a separate problem. There was no way to tell beforehand whether the woman would void a large load or just a few turds. Most all hookers in the 60s and 70s wore sexy panties designed to be alluring. The hanged female voids whatever's in her rectum plus the contents of her lower intestine up to about 20 inches. The study made at Newgate Prison of 100 hanged adult females showed that the women voided an average of just over two pounds of manure based on the suspension time of one hour on the rope. My own personal study revealed an average of just over one and a half pounds. My own test was based on a far lesser suspension period, generally 15 to 20 minutes. I only had 21 women void two pounds or more and only two who voided over three pounds. Missy Ann was one who voided over two pounds. The British scaffold diaper issued to condemn women is designed to hold a substantial load of shit. The average hooker's panty is designed to hold nothing, so what you get is a dirty mess which must be cleaned up. The easiest way is to pull the corpse by its ankles so the buttocks, crotch, and legs can be wiped with toilet paper then washed with soap and water. Once I joined the cops, I had the authority to purchase the scaffold diapers, plastic execution panties, 
which could be put on the lady before her suspension. This worked fine. Save time. Corpse disposal was simple. Send the naked lady down the chute into the hold of the boat for a quick run offshore. Or, if the weather was rough, I just cut the lady in half, put the halves into two garbage bags, and dry them out to county garbage incinerator. Never a problem. The women were endless because, as a cop, I had a list of every registered prostitute in South Florida. Now, as you know, cops get free sex from B-girls on demand. Just flash the tin and she comes along. An hour or two later, she's kicking at the end of a rope. It was a terrific M.O. Never failed. Schaefer began exploring his future. He needed a profession that afforded him power over the vulnerable. Power over sluts and whores. A position that was inherent of trust and compassion. A man who so many lost souls would open up their hearts to, and more important, their doors to. He would become a Catholic priest, and he would hide in plain sight. He'd use the same mind control the Catholic Church used on him and so many others for thousands of years, and then he would have his vengeance. Bad things began to happen in Schaefer's quiet Fort Lauderdale community. Unexplained horrors. One such horror occurred in the dead of night just one block from Schaefer's home. As a woman slept, a man broke into her apartment and cinched a hangman's noose around her neck. She woke in terror, struggling to breathe, and when she tried to free herself and fight off the attacker, the man forced his knees into her back, pulling the noose closed around her neck. However, before she passed out, the man loosened the noose to keep her conscious. She had a horrible story to report to the police. The woman couldn't see the policemen who were interviewing her. Her nose was horribly broke and both of her eye sockets were crushed. The swelling was so severe her eyes were no longer visible. Her jaw was fractured, her bloody lips were mashed and swollen, and the few remaining teeth she had left were cracked, making it almost impossible to even whisper the particulars of the assault to the police. But she was determined. Wincing in pain, she told the police that it seemed like her attacker didn't want her to pass out. It seemed like he knew exactly what he was doing, how to use the noose to control her breathing, like the man wanted her awake so that she would remember the barbarity he was going to put her through. She explained that she was on her belly throughout the attack and she hadn't seen the man's face, which is why she stopped resisting. Once she revealed her compliance to the man, that is when he went completely berserk. He began punching the back of her and then her face, deliberate and brutal punches on both sides of her face like he was trying to obliterate it. She told the police about the brutality of the rape, which began anally, how he used the rope to strangle her somehow knowing when to release it to keep her from passing out. She also gave a chilling account of the man's insanity. She explained that she didn't think she would survive because once the man started beating her, he seemed to get angrier and angrier. His rage kept building, like feeding oxygen to a fire until it was out of control. And then what seemed like the height of his ferocity, the moment I expected to die, everything just stopped and he was gone. These attacks continued in the area, but the assailant was never caught. 
Schaefer was incensed as he drove off the campus of St. John Seminary College in Coral Gables, Florida. He was denied admission into the seminary when they explained that they didn't believe he had the faith, determination, or the dedication for a life in service to the Catholic Church. Schaefer wanted to stab the priest in the eyes, then move from room to room, eviscerating everyone in the building. The irony of this rejection scorched his earth. A religion he no longer believed in had the audacity to question his faith. A diseased organization filled with debauched charlatans and conmen making billions of dollars for a desecrated archdiocese by exploiting the fears of the masses for 2,000 years with their myths and inventions of immaculate conception and Gabriel's wedding trumpets tearing from the heavens, announcing a fire revelation for all non-believers. Die, fuckers, die! Women began going missing all over Florida, with a pattern emerging in Broward and Martin counties. Up until the mid-1980s, communication between the many sheriff's departments and other law enforcement agencies in the state were all but non-existent. Not until many years later, with the advent of high-speed computers, were these departments able to cross-pollinate cases or share information. So no one was able to determine that a pattern of evil had been established. In fact, not until the mid-1970s, when the FBI's Behavioral Science Unit was created, did anyone ever hear of the term serial killer, let alone understand what it meant as well as its ramifications. The first two murders that could be definitively tied to Schaefer occurred on Sunday, October 2, 1966, though according to Schaefer's personal journals, his letters, conversations with friends and snitches, and his post-arrest interviews, these were not his first two murders. Not even close. When interviewed by Special Agent Hazelton of the FBI's Behavioral Science Unit, Schaefer alleged that he'd been killing since 1963 and continued to murder for 10 years until he was captured. He claimed he had stalked and murdered on three continents throughout 24 nations, including Africa, Europe, and the United States, claiming his total number of victims were 140, not nearly the 34 associated with him. The first two victims tied to Schaefer, he was unquestionably their murderer, were 20-year-old Nancy Liker and 20-year-old Pamela Nader. They had been on an outing with friends at Alexander Springs National Park in Ocala, Florida, which is situated in Indian River County, not far from Martin County. Martin County is important because subsequent to these murders, Martin County Sheriff's Department hired Schaefer as a deputy sheriff. At the time of these murders, he was not yet a law enforcer. However, the day Schaefer corrupted a police uniform with the simple act of wearing it, his murderous rampage escalated tenfold. A wolf in sheep's clothing. Subsequent to murder, most serial killers transition into what is referred to as a cooling-off period, a break between murders that last anywhere from a few weeks to a couple of months. However, once he had that perfect cover, a cop, which was even better than a priest, Schaefer became a voracious and unstoppable killing machine. The two girls decided to take a break from scuba diving with their boyfriends to go on a hike through the park. Shoeless and wearing only bathing suits and short-sleeved button-down shirts, they promised to be back in less than an hour. 
leaving behind all of their personal items, including their wallets and purses. That was the last time anyone would ever see them again. They had vanished, disappeared. While serving a life sentence for a double murder at Florida State Penitentiary, Schaefer confessed to a jailhouse snitch how he abducted and killed Nancy Liker and Pamela Nader. He claimed he'd already been doing doubles, abducting and killing two women simultaneously since 1963, so snatching them, according to him, was a piece of cake. Schaefer also wrote about these murders and many others with extremely graphic detail and effusive delight in a self-published book he wrote while incarcerated titled Killer Fiction. In this letter written March 23, 1995, Schaefer details a similar murder to Richard Dickstein. This is the corpse of Consuela Garcia, a lounge prostitute. I picked up at the Boom Boom Room at the Eden Rock Hotel on Miami Beach back in December of 1968. She was dead only about 30 minutes when this photo was snapped. She was age 25, dark brown hair, some kind of Latin woman. You can see on the left side of her chin is a large bruise from the pressure of the noose. There's also some abrasion on the right side. The face above the rope burn is deep purple. You can see the abrasion on her left wrist where I had her wrist tied behind her. Notice how the neck is swollen and elongated. This one hardly pooped at all. Only a few well-rounded firm turds. She peed well. <laughs> you can see the pee stains there on the inside of her left nylon. And there is some dribble at the top of her left leg, and you can see how wet the cunt hair is. I thought a picture of her neatly trimmed $200 pussy would be nice to have in the collection. So, I hiked up her skirt, pulled down her panty, and snapped some souvenir pictures. Right after I took this shot, I humped her. Fresh dead pussy is not at all unpleasant. I just bent her back onto her own calves, and it tilts the cunt right up at you. She's laying on the floor at the Oakland Park Warehouse and just up at the right-hand corner of the photo is the door to the loading chute. Hanger, stripper, slide her down the chute onto the boat for a quick run offshore. No risk at all. Would you like to be able to have an experience like that? Upon meeting the girls in a remote area of the National Park, he presented himself with the utmost respect and professionalism as a police officer. He produced bogus identification, which may have consisted of a phony badge. However, the handcuffs and pistol he produced, they were real. To keep the girls compliant until he had them in the car, Schaefer told them they fit the description of two women that had just committed a robbery in the park. He explained that strict police procedure for his own safety, he was required to handcuff the girls together until their innocence could be determined. Though not to worry, once the matter was cleared up, he would personally take them back and they'd be on their way. Schaefer reassured the naive young woman with a disarming smile, adding levity to the ruse to further acquiesce. Besides, you girls don't look like desperado types, so... I'm sure we'll wrap this up in a jiffy, but I have to check. Just doing my job. I'm sure you understand. Once he had them in the back seat of his car, well hidden behind a copse of white pine, 
he beat both girls into submission, jammed large feminine napkins in their mouths, secured them in nylon stockings, and he drove away. Yes, Schaefer had indeed been a practice killer by this time. Organized serial killers do not murder two women in broad daylight on a virgin journey. There are too many what-ifs. Double murders evolve with his fantasies. Many of Schaefer's murders took place west of Highway A1A, within the remote and isolated forests of Broward, Martin, and St. Lucie counties. When he was active, from 1963 to 1973, these counties were undeveloped tracts of land. These were Schaefer's killing grounds, the place where he received so much gratification for the vengeance he wrought. He had the nooses in place, side by side and looped over a thick, low-hanging branch. On the ground below the noose lay two uneven stumps of punky wood. He had the nooses in place side by side and looped over a thick, low-hanging branch. On the ground below the noose lay two uneven stumps of punky wood. Schaefer backed the car up to the stumps and placed it in park. He then dragged the girls out and at knife point forced him to stand atop his executioner's scaffold, the hollow wood platform. After looping the ropes around their necks, he secured the ends to the car bumper. He used the knife to slice off their clothes and undergarments. After explaining the methods he would employ to torture them, adding the smallest details as how their lives would end, he got back into the car and slowly drove forward. He watched as her legs and feet swung, kicked convulsing to the air as if they were being electrocuted. After a minute or so, he backed the car up until they both hit the ground struggling for it. Schaefer then loosened the ropes, and he began raping, sodomizing, and beating the girls. The girls were perilously close to death. He took a break, offering the young women water and false hope, all a part of his psychotic savagery. When the girls stopped laboring for air, he shifted gears. Schaefer went from physical torture to psychological torture. He toyed with the girls, telling that one of them would in fact die, but one of them would live. Whichever girl convinced him why she should live and the other girl should die, that girl wins the prize, which would be the gift of continued life. But they had to be really, really convincing, or they both died. Schaefer enjoyed watching and listening to the girls grovel and beg for their lives lives he intended on taking, regardless of the sad stories they told. In this undated letter to Richie, Schaefer describes how his technique differs from that of his friend Ted Bundy. Ted preferred to strangle them manually, but I always preferred to use the noose and rope. Manual strangulation is so intimate that if the girl wiggles a lot, you can get her pee or shit on your trousers or shoes. <laughs> you liked my carpet trick. Ted loved it too. It serves as a total surprise to the whore. No problem at all to hang them when they never suspect any danger. It was a suddenly different situation when they had to take them out to Brevard Hangtree. Had to practically drag them out there by the hair. Always had to gag them or they'd be screaming their heads off. But... The hang tree had its benefits too. 
always enjoyable to watch a slow dance. Stephen Giangelo is the author of two books on serial killers, including Real Life Monsters, a psychological examination of the serial murderer. He's a former Illinois state criminal investigator and was assigned to the FBI Joint Terrorism Task Force. Currently, Steve is an adjunct professor in the Criminology and Criminal Justice Department at the University of Illinois Springfield, where he's taught for the last 22 years. So Schaefer wants to be the number one serial killer. His relationship with Bundy was sort of friendly rivals, really. I mean, this is somebody who considered himself an equal to Bundy, that he was somebody of a status that was similar to Bundy, and they would go back and forth and kind of play off each other as far as that. This is something that was important to him. Schaefer stood the girls back on the stumps, tying the rope ends to the bumper, this time without any slack. One wrong move, they would hang to death. The girls were teetering on the brink, shaking in terror and pain. Schaefer had fulfilled his twisted fantasy. With the affected jubilant voice of a game show host, Schaefer announced that he had made his decision. He moved to the girls, kissing them both on the lips. The blade sliced through the air in a blur. When it stopped moving, there was a remarkably straight, clean opening between her pubic bone and her navel. It was a thin, black line running vertically from hip to hip. Suddenly, the black line gave way, opening up into a river of blood. Schaefer placed the blade below the rope and began slicing into the girl's exposed white neck. When he removed her head, the remains of her body, now free from the rope, snapped forward, thudding as it hit the ground. He placed the head in front of his last victim, who was now hanging and turning blue. Schaefer sliced through the rope, which sent her lifeless body hard to the ground. Schaefer told the inmate that before he murdered the second girl with the same savage brutality, he had to revive her two times so that she could watch him rape her headless friend. He buried the girls in pre-dug holes, obsessively cleaned himself in the crime scene, changed his clothes, and then drove off to meet his mother for dinner. Dear Robert, I received multiple life sentences and am regarded as a criminally insane psychopathic sex killer. I don't know why the shrinks say that. You think of a sex killer as a rapist. I never raped anyone. But I can tell you this. Once you draw the noose around a bimbo's neck, she will beg you to give her a hard cock. No need to even ask. The noose has a remarkable effect on a hooker. Take the sass right out of them. You really should try a few experiences. Steve, if he has no respect for human beings and no value for human life. I mean, what is his psychological relationship with the reader? As is typical of the a psychopath, psychopaths generally think less of people that are not psychopathic because people that are not psychopathic go by society's rules and it makes them weak. It makes them less powerful in the world. Um, Schaefer is all about power. He's all about control. This is somebody who used to talk about um, making a woman 
ask him nicely to kill them to put them out of their misery. This is something that was important to him and it was a, an ultimate example of his need for control and his need for power. So everything was about his ability to share that information with another person is, is consistent with his, relation, his, uh, his personality. I think his psychology makes those, um, those uh, sentiments that he brought up in that uh, letter to be pretty legitimate. I think it's something that he really did consider. Schaefer bounced aimlessly through life, moving from one college to the next. He decided teaching would satiate his need to present a trusting appearance. Schaefer was assigned to Plantation High School as a student teacher. However, his tenure there was short, three weeks. The county's education supervisor, Richard Goodhart, fired Schaefer after he received complaints from numerous students, all of whom characterized him as creepy and weird. The last incident occurred when Schaefer followed two of the students off campus. Two girls noticed him driving slowly up and down their block like he was looking for them, they said. When Schaefer saw the girls, he pulled up next to them and opened the door from inside the car. He smiled at them and said he'd give them a lift wherever they wanted. When the girls refused, they said he seemed to get really angry, which is when he jumped out of his car and began moving toward them. Both terrified girls mentioned a change in his face. He was like really angry. It was in his eyes. They were like completely black. Had it not been for the brother of one of the girls taking the dog out at that exact moment, they both said he looked like he wanted to really hurt us, maybe even kill us. Schaefer picked up odd jobs before applying to a number of police and sheriff's departments. The first department he worked, the sheriff didn't like him. Though he'd been there about two years, the sheriff considered him odd and unqualified. The chief was about to fire him when Schaefer suddenly quit. Schaefer applied for and enjoyed the Martin County Sheriff's Office. He forged a glowing letter of recommendation from his previous chief extolling his praises. Had the chief of Martin County Sheriff's Department performed even the slightest due diligence, Schaefer's police career would have ended, though certainly not his murderous intent. Schaefer would have certainly landed another job that afforded him interaction with an unsuspecting public. He was able to continue murdering with the ultimate cover. Without a great amount of luck, the only person who could stop Schaefer from the randomness of his kills was Schaefer himself. And he did. The next body attributed to Schaefer had been on his list for years. A woman he considered his nemesis, she was the unfortunate young woman who Schaefer had been spying on. The same woman he claimed had been torturing him since he was a young teenager. Lee Hainline Bonadies was reported missing on September 8, 1969, never to be seen or heard from again. When the police executed a search warrant at Schaefer's mother's home, clothing and jewelry Hainline wore on the day of her disappearance was discovered. Amongst hundreds of other trophies, photographs of women that appeared strangled and dead, and hundreds of pages of drawings and confessions in his journals. During that time, no one can quantify the exact number of murders Schaefer had committed. What is known about this period of time is that he was an extremely organized and seasoned serial killer. He had perfected his methodology as well as the disposal of his victims. However, in the moment he strapped on a badge and gun, his murders escalated along with his confidence and ego. 
Schaefer believed he was smarter than the veteran cops and detectives he rubbed elbows with, enjoying the fact that he was responsible for the many missing persons reports his and other departments were inundated with. Deputy Sheriff Gerard Schaefer was caught and arrested after he abducted and assaulted two girls, Nancy Ellen Trotter, 19, and Pamela Wells, 18, on July 22, 1972. He brought the two hitchhikers to a desolate area west of Highway A1A, Hutchinson Island in St. Lucia County, Florida. Like so many women before and after, he kidnapped the two girls and brought them to his prearranged killing field, where he handcuffed them and hung them from a low-hanging branch by hangman's noose. Just before he began his gruesome ritual of torture, rape, and murder, he realized he left his hunting knife in his vehicle, so he left the girls unattended as he went to retrieve the weapon. When he was gone, both girls were able to free themselves from the nooses, and they escaped. When Schaefer returned to find the girls missing, he panicked. He called his supervisor at the Martin County Sheriff's Office and explained what he had done, which was a poorly executed lie. Schaefer explained to Sheriff Robert Crowder that when he came upon the girls hitchhiking to teach them a lesson about its inherent dangers, he was going to pretend to abduct them. Once they were good and scared, he said he was going to release them. Of course, once the terrified girls told their side of the story, the true story of his insanity, Schaefer was immediately fired and arrested. They explained to Sheriff Crowder what he was going to do to them and that he'd done it dozens of times before to sluts just like them. After he raped, tortured, and humiliated the girls, he was going to cut up their bodies and then he was going to bury them. He also told them that he might even keep one of their heads or another body part as a memento of the event and no one would ever hear from them or see them again. Subsequent to this, two other victims, Susan Place, 17, and Georgia Jessup, 16, murdered just two months after his arrest, were discovered less than a mile from where this incident took place. A head and one hand were never recovered from the crime scene. Schaefer's lawyer was able to work out a very sweet plea deal for the abduction and assault. Schaefer would serve one year in county jail, and he was allowed to remain free to get his affairs in order until January 15, 1973. From September 1972, when he murdered Susan Place and Georgia Jessup, until January 8, 1973, Schaefer murdered six women, though there may have been more. Sure, I'm convicted of murder, but all the cops ever got was a few bones at one body dump. They got quite a few photos diary, the clothing, but I still have the heads. I'd cut them off, put them in jars of fulminum preservative. I'd make the cut at the base of the neck so I'd have the neck all neatly stretched out. The head and the newt still buried in the neck flesh. I didn't get every head, but I got most of them and it was all photo documented. I got convicted based on the photos and clothing. Even so, the entire case was hushed up because I was a cop, and the law didn't want anyone knowing about all these strung-up bitches. Nobody questions that I was a top serial killer of all time. Even Bundy admired me and gave me all his secrets before he fried on the chair. I was his legal helper for damn near 10 years. 
The end of Schaefer's murderous reign of terror occurred three months into his one-year sentence. The decomposed and decapitated bodies of Susan Place and Georgia Jessup were discovered on Hutchinson Island. The similarities of those murders with retrospect to the kidnapping and assault of Trotter and Wells were striking. A small task force was put together to further investigate Schaefer. After securing a search warrant for his apartment and his mother's home, a treasure trove of his murders were discovered. He was tried and convicted of the Susan Place and Georgia Jessup murders, and he was sentenced to double life in prison without the possibility of parole. Over time, the bodies of some of his victims were discovered. Many others were not. Because there was only circumstantial evidence tying Schaefer to dozens of other murders, he couldn't be charged for those crimes. Schaefer continued to write prolifically while he was incarcerated, cryptically implicating himself in scores of other murders. In 1995, Schaefer's life came to an end when he was murdered by a fellow inmate at Florida State Penitentiary's death row. For additional content and to discuss these podcasts, please go to killersvault.com. The Killer's Vault podcast is based on the serial killer collection owned by Dr. David Adamovich and Lynn Wheat and collected by Richie and Barbara Dickstein. The Killer's Vault podcast is also based on the serial killer collection owned and collected by Rob Webb.